0: Well, here we are. We're about as close to the new year as can be because tomorrow is 2018. Isn't that crazy? And how many of us are feeling ready to move on out of 2017? Right? Because it always feels good to start a new year. It feels fresh. It feels like a fresh start. And every year before we move out of the present year into the new year, Many people anticipating this fresh start make a New Year's what? Resolution, a New Year's resolution. How many of us here have ever made a New Year's resolution? Right, most of us. And if you've ever made a New Year's resolution, you know that before the New Year begins, you commit yourself to either achieve some goal or fulfill some plan or make some kind of change in your life in the new year and for me my most memorable New Year's resolution was made 11 years ago during my freshman year of high school in that year 2006 I had started exercising more and was getting into better shape and I had some pretty big goals for myself in the new in the new year and so for the year 2007 I resolved to do 1 million sit-ups or crunches (laughs) in the new year, which equated to approximately 2,740 crunches per day. However, with all the enthusiasm and confidence I had at the outset, I did not make it through the whole year, or even the whole first day. How many of us here have ever failed to keep our New Year's resolution? Right? A lot of us. See, my complete and utter failure of a New Year's Resolution story is not an uncommon one to hear. Many of us have resolved to change something about our lives and have completely and utterly failed, and some of us at the very first attempt. And this this raises a lot of questions. Questions about human nature and our desire for change. Questions about human nature and our inability to change. Questions about why it seems that things could always be better than they are right now. See, the truth is, when we look at the world around us, and we look at our family and relationships, and we look at our own lives, I think we all know deep down that things aren't as good as they ought to be. Things aren't as good as they ought to be. Somewhere, something went horribly wrong because everything in the natural world seems to tend toward disarray and decay and death. And often our relationships and interactions with people are tinged with dominance behavior and selfishness and hatred, and sometimes we ourselves are just a mess internally. Anxious and depressed, confused stuck in sinful patterns, enslaved to sinful desires, feeling lost, feeling alone, without help and without hope. In those times, we know that things aren't as good as they ought to be. And what do we do? We naturally look forward. We look to the future, we, we, we think something here needs to change, and then we make a new plan or resolution, or we settle down in a new location or home, or we start using a new product or device, or we find a new boyfriend or girlfriend, or we pick up a new hobby or fashion style. We do everything and anything to find the newness and change that we think will mend our brokenness and fix our problems. but we reluctantly discover time and time again that every new thing and idea, innovation, reinvention, and change isn't really good enough. And soon the same brokenness and problems return. Why is our culture always looking to the future when nothing we have ever done, achieved, or created has ever completely fixed these problems that are so common to man? Why do studies show that today, more people around the world are the most stressed out and unsatisfied that they've ever been? Why do studies show today, show that today, more people are suffering from mental illnesses than ever before? And, And why does it seem that the world is becoming increasingly sinful? Are we, in fact, moving further and further away from the solution? Is there any value in reflecting on the past? See, we don't like to reflect on the past. In fact, it's often the past we're trying to forget, and, and besides, the past is gone. We can't retrieve it, we can't get it back. And who in this forward-thinking, ever-changing culture has time to reflect on the past? Well, what did your history teacher say? Those who don't learn from history are doomed to what? Repeat it, those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. I think that saying is not only true, but biblical. Shown time and time again through Israel's continuous failures as a nation, falling into the same patterns of sin over and over and over because of their inability to remember the past. So I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy, fifth book of the Bible, chapter 4. And this morning, I wanna ask you to press pause with me before we jump into 2018 and to look with me into the past so that before we race toward the future, we will be able to know and understand our hope. But before we dig into Deuteronomy, let's pray and let's ask God to help us understand his word this morning. Lord God, may we behold wondrous things from your holy, inspired, inerrant word this morning. Lord, your word that shows us the incredible history of your ancient people, a history that exposed humanity's need for a savior, but also foreshadowed, anticipated, and pointed to that savior who was to come. God, help us to understand your word and to help us see our savior afresh this morning, amen. So to refresh our memories, to bring us into the context of this story, I wanna ask you to pretend with me that you're an ancient Israelite, okay? Actually more specifically, you're an ancient Israelite kid, or maybe a young adult, and remember with me that you grew up as a slave in Egypt under a wicked pharaoh, But then you witnessed God's power over creation as He parted the Red Sea, and God's power over your enemies, the Egyptians, as He brought you out of Egypt in a great exodus. And then you witnessed God's presence descend in a thick cloud upon Mount Sinai, where your people were encamped. And there you witnessed Moses give the law and Ten Commandments from God. And then you witnessed the construction of the tabernacle. But then you witnessed your parents grumble and complain about not having food and water now that they were out of Egypt and traveling in the wilderness. But then you witnessed God miraculously provide manna and quail from heaven and water from a rock. And you witnessed Moses tell your parents that God was giving them the promised land, the land of Canaan to take possession of it. And you witnessed Moses send spies into Canaan, and you witnessed them return to the congregation with fruit saying, it's a good land that that God is giving us, and it's flowing with milk and honey. But you witnessed the spies, though excited about the land of Canaan, terrified of a people called the Anakim who lived there, who seemed greater and taller than them and too strong to fight against. And you witnessed your parents in unbelief Rebel against the command of the Lord to take Canaan at that time. And they even planned to forsake the Lord and return to Egypt. And you witnessed God respond by saying that they would all die in the wilderness and never see the promised land. All but their children. All but you. And then you witnessed your parents say to themselves, you know what? No, we're not going to sit around and die in the wilderness. We're going to enter into the promised land on our own without God. And you witnessed your parents try to enter into the promised land, but God was not with them. And they were beaten back and defeated and then chased by the Amorites like a swarm of bees. But you witnessed God continue to show grace and faithfulness to your people. You witnessed God continue to lead and guide your people by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And you witnessed the fulfillment of the promise that God in his grace and faithfulness would bring the children of Israel to the promised land. And now you are standing on the plains of Moab right by the Jordan River. After wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, finally, ready to enter into Canaan. And Moses recalls all of this history in the first three chapters of Deuteronomy. And he wants to remind you of these past events so that you won't fall into the same patterns of sin and rebellion and unbelief as your parents when you get into Canaan. But Moses doesn't only want to remind you of your people's failures as a nation, he also wants to remind you that though we sin, We can have hope. And that brings us to our text this morning in Deuteronomy chapter four, verses 31 through 40, where Moses is asking you and I to remember who God is and what he's done for us in the past. So let's read, starting at verse 31. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you, or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. For ask now of the days that are past which were before you, since the day that God created man on the earth, and ask from one end of heaven to the other whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard of. Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the, from the midst of another nation? By trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. Out of heaven he let you hear his voice that he might discipline you And on earth he let you see his great fire, and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. And because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in, to give you their land for an inheritance as it is this day, know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath there is no other. Therefore, you shall keep his statutes and in his commandments, which I command you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for all time. So in the context and in this passage, Moses is telling us we must remember God. We must remember God. And this theme of remembering and not forgetting is a central theme of the Old Testament as we're urged over and over to remember and to not forget God's person God's character the things God has done God's commands and in this passage Moses tells us at least 10 specific things to remember 10 things number one God is merciful toward his people God is merciful toward his people. Verse 31a says, for the Lord your God is a merciful God. And Israel had experienced God's mercy toward them time and time again. For example, after the Exodus, when God began leading his people to Canaan, they struggled to find drinkable water. But instead of just asking the God who had just parted the Red Sea to give them water, they grumbled against God. But God in his mercy led them to a place called Elam where there were 12 springs of water for them to drink from. But just after they leave Elam, they grumble against God again because now they're hungry and they have no food. But instead of just asking God to give them food, they go so far to say, it would have been better for us to die in Egypt where at least we had meat and bread. But God has brought us out into this wilderness just to kill us but God in his mercy provides the manna, bread from heaven, and quail from heaven. Incredible, and later when Moses comes down Mount Sinai having just received the 10 commandments from God, he returns to find that Israel had melted down all their gold jewelry and had made it into a golden calf and they were now worshiping it. And they were singing to it and dancing around it and they were praising it for bringing them up out of Egypt. And at the risk of his life, Moses cries out to God on behalf of his people and says, take me, blot me out, just forgive them. But God in his great mercy doesn't take Moses' life, calls his people to repentance and forgives them. God is merciful toward his people. Number two, God's relationship with his people is covenantal. God's relationship with his people is covenantal. Verse 31b says, he, God, will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. And this covenant with your fathers here in Deuteronomy chapter four can be traced all the way back to Genesis chapter 15 where God entered into a covenant with a man who would later become known as the father of the faithful. Who is that? Father of the faithful, Abraham. And what happened was God sought out a pagan man named Abram who would later be renamed Abraham and God said to Abram, Abram, this is going to be the nature of our relationship. Leave your family, leave your land, leave your pagan gods and follow me. I will be your God. You belong to me now. And God promised to make Abram into a great nation and promised to bless his descendants after him and promised to be their God. So God was promising and binding himself to Abram and his descendants in a special covenantal way. And right here in the context of our passage today, Israel is finally at the border of Canaan only because... God is in a covenant relationship with his people and has been faithful to them and has not forsaken them according to his promise, though they have been unfaithful to him and have forsaken him over and over. God's relationship with his people is covenantal. Number three, God speaks to his people. God speaks to his people. Verse 33 says, did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? And verse 36 says, out of heaven he let you hear his voice and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. Now the authors of scripture say that God has spoken in some different ways. So God has spoken through the natural world, his creation as the structure, order, and complexity and beauty of the natural world screams together, there is a God who made me and he is glorious and to be worshiped. And God has also spoken through performative acts which is an act or an action of God that is seen but isn't heard. It communicates something without words. And a good example of this is the parting of the Red Sea. And, and in that event, God was communicating, I have power over my creation, and I have power over my enemies, and I fight for my people. And God has also spoken through audible speech, speech that can actually be heard with our ears. And most often in the Old Testament, God spoke to his appointed prophets who then relayed what God had said to the people. And God also spoke speaks most clearly to us today through his word. And what you, and all throughout the Bible, what you don't see is people putting words in God's mouth, or guessing what God would say, or assuming what God has said, because God always revealed himself plainly and clearly at many times and in many ways, leaving no place for assumptions, no place for guessing, and no place for anyone to speak for him. God speaks to his people. Number four, God rescues his people. God rescues his people. Verse 34a says, or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation? And then Moses recalls the events of the Exodus, the trials, signs, wonders, war, God's mighty hand and outstretched arm, everything God did to rescue his people and bring them out of Egypt. God rescues his people. Number five, God has shown his people that he alone is God and that there is no other besides him. God has shown his people that he alone is God and that there is no other besides him. Verse 35 says, to you it was shown, comma, that you might know that the Lord is God, there is no other besides him. In other words, God's demonstration of power in the Exodus over Egypt's Pharaoh, And over Egypt's gods and over creation, it was all meant to show that the Lord, their rescuer, their God, is the Lord. Not Pharaoh, not any of Egypt's gods, nothing else in all creation, right? Because God has power over creation. God has shown his people that he alone is God and that there is no other besides him. Number six, God loves his people. God loves his people. Verse 35, sorry, this point is implied in the text because it would only make sense for God to show mercy to and make a covenant with and speak to and rescue a people he loves. But verse 37a also says that he, God, loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them, which again points back to God's covenant with Abraham and his promise to bless his descendants and to be their God too. It was out of love. God loves his people. Number seven, God chooses his people. God chooses his people. And from the same verse we just read, verse 37a, he, God, loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them. So what we see from Genesis up to this point, Deuteronomy, is that God is in a covenant relationship with Israel. But God didn't make a covenant with any other people. And God rescued the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, plucking them right out of another nation saying, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. But God didn't do that for any other people. And God gave them his law and commandments. But God didn't give his law and commandments to any other people. And over and over the Old Testament says that the Lord was their God. But the Lord was not the God of any other people. And you know why? Because the other nations were busily worshiping the gods of their own design and imagination. And God was bringing them into the land that he swore to their fathers to give to them. But God was not bringing any other people into the land of Canaan by a promise. And God's choosing is inextricably connected to his mercy his love, his covenant, and his rescuing. And in Deuteronomy chapter seven, verses six through eight, we read one of the sweetest statements about these connected concepts of God's choosing, mercy, love, covenant, and rescuing. Moses says, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession, out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And why? Did you catch what Moses said was the basis of God's love and sovereign choice? Look at verse seven, the beginning of verse eight. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you. The basis of God's loving and choosing of his people is his love for them. God loves them just because he loves them. And that's why he chooses them also. God chooses his people. Number eight, God does for his people what they could never do for themselves. God does for his people what they could never do for themselves. Verses 37 and 38 say, He, God, loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than you, to bring you in, to give you their land for an inheritance as it is this day. In other words, God is the one doing all these things, rescuing them, making a way for them, and bringing them into the promised land. God does for his people what they could never do for themselves. Number nine, God graciously gives to his people. God graciously gives to his people. And this is all implied in everything we've said so far because it's all a gift of God's grace but it's also stated here at the end of verse 38 where it says that God is giving them the promised land for an inheritance. God graciously gives to his people. And number 10, God demands his people's obedience to his statutes and commandments. God demands his people's obedience to his statutes and commandments. Verse 40 says, therefore, you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for all time. And the key word in this verse here is the word therefore. Therefore, which is a word that points us back to everything Moses has just told us to remember about God in verses 31 through 39. So in verses 31 through 39, Moses is providing us the motivation to do what he calls us to do in verse 40, to keep God's statutes and commandments. In other words, Moses is saying, remember God's mercy toward you and keep his statutes and commandments remember God's covenant with you and keep his statutes and commandments. Remember that God has spoken to you and keep his statutes and commandments. Remember that God has rescued you and keep his statutes and commandments. Remember that God has shown you that he alone is God and that there is no other besides him and keep his statutes and commandments. Remember that God loves you just because he loves you and keep his statutes and commandments. Remember that God has chosen you, and keep his statutes and commandments. Remember that God has done for you what you could never do for yourself, and keep his statutes and commandments. And remember that God graciously gives to you, and remember, sorry, rather, keep his statutes and commandments. Moses is saying, this is a God you want to follow. This is a God you want to obey. This is a God who has done for you immeasurably more than you could have ever asked for, ever imagined, or ever hoped for. And this is Moses' plea. We must remember God. We must remember God. It's simple. But here's the problem. Though the message is simple, we are sinful. Though the message is simple, we are sinful. And because we are sinful, we don't remember God. We don't remember God, and you probably don't have to think too long about your own history to convince yourself that this point is true, that we don't always remember God. And why do we so often forget him, because Everything in this world competes for our attention and loyalty and love. And we, because of our sin, and just like Israel, find ourselves rebelling against God and acting in faithlessness because we desire other things or expect to have things that God doesn't give us or want things to go our way or just want to do what we want to do or just love our sin. And we know that something is wrong, that things aren't as good as they ought to be, and so we try to make things better. Maybe we try to cover up our sin with good works, or try extra hard to be a good person, or try harder to do the right thing, or resolve with every ounce of strength we have to change. But we fail. And as I said at the very beginning of the sermon, nothing we have ever done or achieved or created has ever fixed these problems that are so common to man. And we often just keep looking to the future, hoping that something new will come along and fix these issues, or that something we will do in the future will fix these issues, when we should be looking to the past to see that that something, or rather that someone, has already come. And this is our hope that God remembers us. God remembers us. I told you earlier about God's covenant with Abraham, but I didn't tell you about how that covenant was established. See, in Abraham's culture, when two parties would make a covenant promise to each other, they would cut open and lay out pieces of a dead animal, and then they would walk between the pieces making their promises, so as to demonstrate and say, if I do not keep my promise, may what has become of this animal become of me. And God entered into this covenant with Abraham, except not by standard procedure. An animal was cut open and laid out, but God alone passed between the pieces without Abraham, which, which was God's way of saying, If I, the Lord, break this covenant, may I become like this animal. And if you or your descendants, Abraham, break this covenant, may I become like this animal, torn into pieces. Ultimately, God would keep the covenant promises despite Abraham and his descendants' actions even if it meant he would be torn into pieces. And he was 2,000 years later on a cross. Jesus came down to earth in fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham to carry out the consequence of a broken covenant and to save those who trust in him from the same fate, a fate we all deserve. And also, the truth is that Israel had an even greater enemy than Pharaoh when they were in Egypt an enemy that oppressed them, an enemy that enslaved them, an enemy that was within them, an enemy that was their greatest enemy. See, the Exodus was a picture of an even greater Exodus that God would later accomplish through Christ a liberation of God's people from the slavery of their own sin. Left to ourselves, we could never escape our sin, just like the Israelites couldn't escape Egypt. But by a divine miracle, Jesus, in his death, parted the sea of sin that separated us from a holy God and brought us up out of death into life and left our sin behind to be swept away forever such that we would now live in freedom and walk in newness of life forever. It was at the cost of his life that Jesus cried out to God the Father on behalf of his people, just like Moses did after the golden calf incident, saying, do not blot them out. Take me, take me instead. I can atone for their sin because I am sinless and perfect. And Jesus died for us, a sinful people so that we might put away every idolatrous golden calf that we conceive with our hands and in our hearts, every golden jewel in our lives that we wear like chains and shackles of slavery that keep us in bondage to our sin. And the manna sent from heaven, and the water God provided for his people in the wilderness sustained God's people physically. But Jesus, who called himself the bread of life, in John chapter six. And the living water of eternal life in John chapter four sustains his people spiritually. How? By changing grumbling hearts to rejoicing hearts. And dead hearts into living hearts. And empty hearts into hearts that are filled and made glad by the goodness and grace of God such that they no longer hunger and thirst for other things. And like the Israelites, those who trust in Jesus, too, wander in a land that is not their home, not their final resting place. We journey throughout life awaiting a greater Canaan, a greater promised land, a city whose designer and builder is God, a better country that is a heavenly one, Hebrews chapter 11, verses 10 and 16 say. And it's a better country because it's a place of eternal rest no more pain, no more suffering, no more mourning, no more crying, no more sin in the presence of God forever. God remembered us and showed us the fullness of his mercy in Christ, the fullness of his covenant promises and even the establishment of a new covenant of grace in Christ. The fullness of his speaking to us by actually coming to us in Christ. The fullness of his rescuing in Christ. The fullness of his unparalleled uniqueness and distinctness as the only God in Christ and in what Christ accomplished. The fullness of his love in sending Christ to save us. The fullness of his choosing in Christ. The shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep. The fullness of his doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. In Christ who saved us from the slavery and consequences of our own sin. And gave us life when we were dead. And the fullness of his giving in Christ who gave it all and paid it all. For those of you who have trusted in Jesus for salvation, know that God remembered you at the cross. And also remember this, that God remembers you today in light of the cross. Many of us have made New Year's resolutions or will make a New Year's resolution by the end of the day or maybe won't make a New Year's resolution, but know that there is something in our lives something significant that needs to be changed. Perhaps you want and know you need to spend more time with your family as you feel certain members drifting apart from relationship with you and you're losing them. Or you want and know you need to give up that substance or that drink that is your escape from the pains of reality doing more harm to you than good. Or you want and know you need to stop looking at pornography on the internet as it's taking over your mind and your every thought and imagination and the way you look at women or men enslaving you. Or you want and know you need to read your Bible more as it's collecting dust on your bookshelf or nightstand and you wanna know his word better. Or you want and know you need to attend church more to be in fellowship with God's people and to worship God together with them or you want to know you need to follow and obey God with your actions, your words, your thoughts, your desires. And if you've ever tried to change anything like any of these things before, you know that it's harder than just deciding to do it or even making a New Year's resolution of it or even promising to yourself or to others that you're going to do it. We often fail. See, God's plan for you is for you to be changed. But God wants to change you in a way that is often counterintuitive to us. God does not want to change you from the outside in. God wants to change you from the inside out. This means that real change proceeds from a changed heart. Real change proceeds from a changed heart. See, the heart is not changed when we, according to our personal timetables, say, in the new calendar year, not today, but tomorrow, I will change blank about my life. Because that doesn't require God. That doesn't proceed from a changed heart. And we may find ourselves failing to keep our own promise to ourselves. What then? And the heart is not changed when we just wanna do the right thing and say, I'm gonna change blank about my life because I know it's just the right thing to do. Because we can sometimes do the right thing without God. Doing the right thing doesn't necessarily proceed from a changed heart. And we may find ourselves soon slipping back into doing the wrong thing. What then? And the heart is not changed when we know that certain behaviors and habits are harmful to us and we say, I am going to change blank about my life because I know it's harming me more than it's helping me. Because self-protection and self-preservation don't require God. They don't necessarily proceed from a changed heart. And we may find ourselves soon seeking pleasure even to our own destruction again. What then? See, the Bible always speaks of godly change from a place of real relationship with God and as a work of God in our lives. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, and we all, those who have trusted in Christ, with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image, the image of Christ from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. In Philippians 1.6 says, God who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. The only way to battle sin and to seek godly change is from a real relationship with the God of the universe. And that means if you're seeking change, you should first be seeking God. If you're seeking change, you should first be seeking God. See, nearly every other religion on the planet says, first obey God and then he will show you mercy. And then he will rescue you. And then he will love you. And keep obeying him so that he doesn't leave you. Actions first. Relationship follows from the actions. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, God has shown you mercy, now obey him. God has rescued you, now obey him. God loved you before you even loved him. Now obey him and know this, that he will never leave you or forsake you, even when you fail. Relationship first, actions follow from the relationship. This is what Moses told the people of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter four. God's real relationship with his people and how that was worked out through history was to be Israel's motivation for keeping God's statutes and commandments. And how much more, how much more has God been merciful to us and rescued us and loved us in Christ? How much greater is our motivation now I just want to acknowledge that for some of you here you may not have a real relationship with the God of the universe maybe you've been coming to church for years and maybe you've been trying to do all the right things and say all the right things but at the end of the day you know that you do not have a real relationship with Jesus if that's you then today is the day to see what God has done for you in the past, taking your lifetime of sin upon himself to forgive you and cleanse you and bring him into his family, today is the day to, through faith, give Jesus the rightful place in your heart as your God and your king. And if you did that today or if you want to do that today, come talk to me out in the foyer after the service. I would love to pray with you and to celebrate that with you and so as we enter into this new year I want to encourage you to remember that God will remember us with eyes of mercy knowing our frame that we are weak fallible imperfect and sinful and God will remember us in light of the new covenant in Christ's blood whereby we were brought near to God and are now under his grace And God will remember us as he speaks to us through his word, his word that is living and active and powerful in our lives. And God will remember us by rescuing us from our sin throughout our entire life, from specific sins that cripple our walk with God. And God will remember us by continually showing us through answered prayer and miracles and timely words that he alone is God. And God will remember us by showering us with his love and surrounding us with his presence. And God will remember us by reminding us that we belong to him because he chose us and he brought us into his family. And God will remember us by continually doing for us what we could never do for ourselves, like changing our desires, so that we desire him more than we desire our own sin. And God will remember us by graciously giving to us everything that pertains to life and godliness. To remember who God is and what he's done and that he remembers us is boundless hope. But to forget God is the surest way to discouragement and failure. When we forget God, all we have left to look to And our only hope for change is ourselves. And we fail ourselves. But when we remember God, we know that his steadfast love and faithfulness toward us will always result in grace and mercy over us. And this gives us hope. Hope that God will be with us every step of the way through the good and the bad and the ugly as we battle sin and as we seek godly change And as we journey in this life to the greater land, the greater promised land of heaven. Let's pray. Lord God, I want to pray for those of us here in this room today who know that there is something or maybe a lot of things in our life that needs to change. And Lord, I pray that your people would look not to themselves, but to you specifically to who you are and to what you've done and to what you've promised by your grace to do in our lives. So, Lord God, give us the grace to remember, and give us the grace to follow, and give us the grace to change in this new year. We ask this in your name. Amen.